Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Um, okay, so here's the deal. This episode is going to be a little odd. Uh, it is certainly off format. Uh, let me explain what's going on. So I just started grad school. Uh, I'm currently attending UCLA. I'm getting my master's in film. And uh, this is basically my first week. And anticipating that I was going to have a lot of work to do uh, and that sort of thing, uh, I recorded all of October's episodes in advance uh, so that I wouldn't have to worry about recording them uh, while school was going on. Uh, and then this week's episode, uh, I asked one of our writers, Jim Rohner, who was on the show as well last year talking about Jacob's Ladder, I asked him to record an episode about his own personal top 10 movies of all time. And that is what you're going to hear. Now, he recorded it by himself, so I am not there. Uh, it is just going to be him, it's, so at some point I'm going to throw to him, and then you'll just uh, be listening to Jim for a while. Uh, this is a thing that might have to happen from time to time. I'm not planning on it happening very often, but it might, um, just because, you know, I'm going to be going to school. I'm going to have my job. I'm going to have battleship pretension. I'm, I'm keeping uh, worth playing for going. Uh, I need to have, uh, some, something of a meaningful relationship with my wife. And so it's just, uh, I don't want to take a break from more than one lesson, and I don't want any weeks where there's uh, nothing. So this is a thing that's probably going to happen every once in a while. I can't imagine it happening. Imagine it happening very often, but it, it it's going to need to. Whether it be Jim or Josh or Reed or Robert or or one of our other contributors, um, just uh, recording something, and then I put that out uh, to you guys. So. Uh, I thank you guys for bearing with me uh, as uh, as this happens. Um, I'm now only a few days into school, and I am, boy, I'm very happy I chose to do this because it's nice not having to worry about uh, recording, you know, the next for the next five weeks. Uh, that actually takes. Uh, a huge load off. So, uh, so thank you everybody for listening. And then I will, I will throw it to Jim. Hello, I am Jim Rohner. I am the host of the I do movies badly podcast, and I'm recording this, uh, podcast episode, um, of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. Uh, perhaps if you are a fan of Tyler and of more than one lesson and have uh, been a follower of his website for a while, you know, that, uh, back about two years ago. This is something that I actually tried to start in blog form and gave up on. Um, for those of you who may not have been aware of that or are kind of new to more than one lesson, let me give you a little bit of backstory of what's kind of going on before I sort of get into this list. Uh, about two years ago, Tyler um, was doing a, a top ten um, of a top ten best films of all time. He and Josh, and he threw it out to the more than one less contributors and said, "If anyone wants to um, try their hand at it, go right ahead." And I, I, I volunteered, but I kind of quickly realized that I don't have the knowledge base or the experience to do a uh, what I would assume to be a. Um, a worthwhile top 10 best list. There's certainly lots of films and filmmakers I haven't seen, hence my creation of I Do Movies Badly podcast. So I didn't think I would be able to do a top 10 best of all time. So I said, but I can do a top 10 favorites of all time. And 
that may seem like the same thing to people, but I, I hold a, a distinction between the two. Best certainly, like I said, seems to imply that you've seen enough, that you've been exposed enough, that you are, I suppose, cultured enough to kind of um, accurately or um, sufficiently weigh in upon uh, these films are the 10 best of all world cinema of all time of all everything and I just didn't think that I would have been able to do that so I but I so I, I said but no I, I can do a, a list of my top 10 favorite movies which are the 10 movies that not that I think are the best of all time but the ones that hold some type of special significance to me because of let's call them intangible factors time place context how they've mean in, in the evolution of my life. That, that, that was a thing that I felt that I could do. And I started that out, uh, like I said, about two years ago and was decent about doing one blog entry per month until there was about a nine-month break. Um, and then I came back and did number seven and then eventually just dropped off the face of the earth. And I won't get into too many details about why I did that. You can certainly, um, as of the, the posting of this podcast, I believe Tyler has also posted a blog that I wrote on More Than One Lesson kind of uh, explaining and going into detail about the many factors that contributed uh, to me kind of giving up on that. But eventually I kind of collected myself, got back together, and when Tyler said, why don't you do a podcast episode instead about your top 10 favorites, I figured that's something that, I, that I, I, I'd be more willing to do because it's just sitting down for, what, 90 minutes, two hours, however long this episode is going to be, and kind of getting it all out of the way instead of sort of um, stressing about it for months, second-guessing myself, sitting down and writing a blog, and then wondering, like, well, you know, the one I have to do next month, is that one actually going to be number eight, or should it be number seven, or what about this movie, and blah, blah, blah. And so I just kind of eventually decided, yeah, I'm just I'll just do this episode. I'll get my top ten list, and even if that even if it changes, so be it. You know, as of right now, this list that I'm going to present to you is I, I don't want to say definitive, but this is sort of right now a a a, a picture of me, Jim Rohner, what my top ten favorite movies are at this point in my life, which I think is liberating to say because that uh, you know a best list you sort of feel like you have to defend it to a certain degree especially as more great films from more great filmmakers you know come out or emerge or whatever but a favorites list there's sort of a fluidity to it or there's an understanding that it doesn't have to be solid because when intangible factors are going into your list or going into your opinion there's an understanding that those things are going to change that you as a person are going to change um and maybe that's just a, a self-conscious or subconscious way of sort of me being able to defend the fact that I'm about to talk about 10 movies that, for most of which people probably would not include on their top 10 best list, and certainly some may not even include on their favorites list. But this is me. This is essentially a picture of me, of who I am as a movie fan, of how life and circumstances have um, come together in my time, in my existence, to sort of shape my opinions and my thoughts on certain things. So, having said that, hopefully that sort of explains enough. Hopefully you sort of have enough context now, and you're in, a, in the right spot, you know, the right mental spot to sort of sit down and listen to this list and kind of think, okay, what I'm about to hear is a picture of this guy's life, of a picture of this guy's exposure and experience and, 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 and um, position in the world, and not necessarily what Jim thinks are the top 10 best movies of all time. Though I will say, let me see, looking at this list, um, two, maybe three, I'd even say, I think would actually go on a list of what I think are the top 10 best 
if that's even something I ever um, attempt to sit down and do. Maybe I will someday, maybe I won't. That's for another day and a certain another version of me to decide. But I guess there's nothing else to do than just sort of get into it. So here we go. Oh, no, not here we go, because there's one thing that I'm forgetting about. For those of you um, who did read those blogs or who are familiar with uh, what I had been trying to do, I will say that things have changed a little bit. Um, during this process of reevaluation and sort of revisiting a lot of these movies and these titles and sort of, once again, thinking how I've changed and, and how things are, mean differently to me now, um, I've realized that uh, the, the, the order, order has changed a bit, or not so much the order has changed, but um, one explicit thing is that one of the titles that I initially started with is actually no longer on this list, and I will certainly get to that. Um, it, you know, full disclosure and sort of seeing how the sausage is made or inside baseball or whatever metaphor you want to use uh, for a peep behind the curtain. Um, the order of, of some of the movies that were going to be on the list that I did not get to have also changed a little bit and one has been put on there and one has uh, been knocked off. That doesn't mean anything to you because certainly I, I did not even get to them when I had started writing, but uh, just wanted to kind of uh, further emphasize the fact that things have been changing and so certainly the one that um that was on the list and is no longer on the list i will get to that when i get to it but you know i i suppose i should not i, I should no longer dilly dally this is certainly um part of me which is very intimidated to be doing this but you know no no better way to get used to the water than, than just to dive right in so let's start with number 10 my number 10 favorite movie of all time is 1974's the texas chainsaw massacre co-written by Kim Hankel and Toby Hooper, and of course directed by Toby Hooper. Um, I talked about this a little bit in the blog that I wrote, that it might be strange that for a Christian film outlet uh, that that I'm, I'm talking about a horror film, not just specifically a horror film, but a horror film which is so dark and unsettling and twisted. And <laughs> it's kind of weird, uh, but that's actually kind of why I like this movie so much. Um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when I first saw it, and it's, it's funny, this is a, a recurring theme um, for a lot of these movies that I, I, I won't be able to recall the first time that I ever saw them, but they did leave an indelible mark because I am continuously going back to them and re-watching them. Um, you know, the, these are the kind of movies, if you kind of want to think, what's a, what's a favorite movie? What makes a movie a favorite more than best? Is like, well, if I got no plans on a Friday night, what movie am I popping in to watch, you know, rather than exploring something new? And The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is certainly one that I've seen countless times that I love, that I wrote a final paper about in college in my Essence of Cinema class, you know, my film theory class. That's how much I loved it. That's how much I saw into it. Um, and it kind of works on... I don't want to say it works on two levels, but there's two distinct reasons why I why I love this movie. The first one is, is sort of what you'd sort of think for the the standard horror film coming out in America in the 1970s, which is of course what does this say about American society in the 1970s? And th there, there's a lot of allegory to be drawn here, a lot of metaphors, however you want. Of course, the movie was inspired by just uh, Toby Hooper had an idea of like he was in a, a crowded hardware store and he thought. What if I just took a chainsaw to cut through this crowd to get out of here? That's where the initial genesis of the movie started, but that is clearly not what the movie's about. The movie's about, of course, a group of young teenagers who get lost in the back, uh, you know, in backwater, backcountry Texas, stumble upon a family of cannibals, and they are systematically one by one killed and sort of eaten until um, we have the last girl who escapes. Uh, but despite the fact that she escapes, the family that killed all her friends are still very much alive and free to continue wreaking havoc on whoever might stumble upon their abode and uh, it's amazingly cynical it's amazingly dark and a lot of that has to do with like i said being a film from the 1970s that comes out of america and you can certainly see parallels of if you want 
Vietnam, you have a bunch of people who are kind of in a land or a landscape which is unfamiliar to them. Uh, the locals have uh, an advantage. The locals are not friendly and are openly brutal and murderous of the people who stumble upon them. You could also look upon it as, um, you know, the 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 evolution of technology and the death of of Americana or the death of sort of um, homegrown industry. It's hinted on a little bit, but the family that uh, that that terrorizes these kids used to work in the the uh, as butchers, you know, used to work killing cows in, in, in town. But because of uh, the advent of a machine technology, which does it much more efficiently, they are no longer working. And so you must you know, the implication is kind of being like to in order to adapt to their situation in which they are no longer making money, in which they no longer can eat. They are forced into cannibalism in order to make their needs uh, met in order in order to feed themselves. So there's certainly those undercurrents. But I also enjoy the fact that there's um there's sort of a a, a deconstructed element here, or at least a um, um, a deconstruction of, of horror tropes. Uh, and this is what my paper focused on when I wrote about this, was this idea of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre being a postmodern masterpiece because of how it takes standard archetypes or tropes in a movie and sort of twists them on their head. Um, one of those being, obviously, first and foremost, the family structure. The family being typically thought of in movies and presented in movies as something of safety, as something of love and of compassion and of support. Instead, the family in this is a is a picture of brutality and a picture of danger and a picture of murder and 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 not <laughs> and of of insanity. Uh, there's also, I, I think, something to be said about the the subversion of the female form and what the female implication is. Uh, and, and specifically by that, and it means that there, there's a scene at, at dinner when Sally is tied up and they're they're howling at her and she is terrified and she's begging to get out. And what she says to them is, please let me go. I'll do anything. And we don't have to be geniuses to kind of imply or understand the implication of, well, hey, she's an attractive young female. What does anything mean? What is she willing to wager or to sacrifice in order to get out? And... Instead of that, I mean, it's not even as though the implication is lost on them. The implication, they, they don't even care. They have no interest in her as a sexual being. They only have interest in her as literal meat, as food. Uh, and that is the ultimate objectification, I suppose. It, it, even, it transcends sexuality and goes instead just to living or dead, food or not. And there is something so brutal about that. And that ties into... Another reason why I really appreciate this film is the, I don't even want to say the brutality of it, I'll say the messiness of it. There is, or there has been a movement, at least in mainstream cinema, probably dating back to like early 2000s, and you can think of, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, the Friday the 13th remake, pretty much anything that has been done by Marcus Nispel and other directors who, who are trying to emulate this, this look and this mood of a, a slicked up dirtiness which in the sense of everyone looks very dirty and everyone looks very sweaty and clothes are worn down and, and, and covered in mud and blood, but there's a slickness to it. The cinematography, everything is very, I, I hate to say it again, but everything is very slick. Um, and the, these, these two, the, those two looks are really in contrast. You're trying to make it dirty, but you're trying to make it look really good too. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre doesn't do any of that. The original Texas Chainsaw just looks really dirty. It looks gross. It looks like it was hot and miserable and that everyone there, nobody wants to be there and everyone legitimately wants to escape from this world that they are in. This dirty, raw, 
smelly, bloody, gross um, environment. And that's because that was how it was in real life. And I, I don't necessarily think that um, you know, to an extent, I'm at, well, I should step back and actually say instead, I'm sort of torn on how much real life or how much background and making of a film should go into your evaluation of the actual finished product. Um, but I know that in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they were filming out in Texas in the middle of the heat, and that dinner scene had real meat, and when it was 120 degrees, the meat stank, and everyone was miserable, and everyone hated each other, and everyone wanted to get out. And on top of that, they had no money. They were, you know, trying to push. They had no budget. And it was just, it, it seems like it was a completely miserable production experience. And that misery comes through in every single frame of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is a deeply unsettling watch, not because it's particularly violent, not because it's particularly bloody, not because it's particularly gory or visceral. A lot of violence is sort of, um, if not hinted at, then you sort of, it, it's, it's not explicit. But man, this is an unsettling, troubling movie to sit through because of the environment, because of how suffocating just everything about this movie is. And it's really, really difficult to achieve that kind of mood and that kind of environment in a movie because these days movies have so much budget, because movies, because the technology has evolved to such a point where everything can look very good. It's hard to take something that looks very good and make it look bad. It, it becomes apparent, you know what I mean? But when you just kind of have the basics, when you have the bare minimum, and the bare minimum comes across, it just, it takes something with it, man. It, it just, it, it has some type of, once again, an intangible factor which no other movie can duplicate because that was inherent from the very beginning that the movie started filming. Um, and that's kind of why I love the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, sort of why um, it it's, it's, has stood out to me year after year as, as a movie which is um, a, deeply, a deeply upsetting and unsettling movie to sit through. Um, moving on to number nine, which is, <laughs> I'd say, equally as cynical, but in, in a much different sense. We have... Number nine is uh, 2004's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, directed by Michel Gondry, written by him and Charlie Kaufman. Uh, this film, of course, um, won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay uh, back in 2005. Um, but it was a travesty, in my opinion, that it was not nominated for more, or, 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 or yeah, did not win more than that. I'm thinking of Best Picture and uh, maybe a nomination for Jim Carrey for Best uh, for Best lead actor but that's besides the point eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is um this is a movie that i remember i first saw it in college and it was one of those that of course blew me away in college because of um well all sorts of things because of um how it played with structure because of how it plays with um you know not the cinematography but but, but how how michel gondry explores uh dream states and and sort of how he uses visuals and and, and uh, to, to depict erasing memories and confusion and the retreat back into into um, into memory uh, but then also I, I loved how I loved how at least at the time what I interpreted was I loved how of a, how much of a happy ending it was how much how much did these two had gone through and realized that things were so shitty but but at the end they're like no but you know things were shitty but I but I love you and I want to go through this anyway yeah, we may go through all this again, but I want to because because I love you. And, I, and, and at first, when I saw that in college, I, I saw it as sort of um, an idealism. And this idea of two people who are willing to, willing to frustrate themselves, willing to forget themselves for the sake of another person. Um, 
But then as I grew up and I would watch this movie again and again, I realized how much I, not how much it changed, but how much I have changed, or at least how much my opinion of the journey that uh, that Clementine and Joel go through, how, how I don't see it as idealism, how I don't necessarily see it as something which is to be admired or longed for. Um, and, and that's why I love Eternal Sunshine, because it's something which is... Um, it stands out to me as art that that doesn't change, but but continues to mean something new or different to us as we change. Instead of kind of seeing like, oh yeah, the, you know, I, I see this now, you know, or or I see this now and it means this one thing to me. And ten years later, like, oh, it still means that, but that's why I care about it less now because it stands as this monument to something which I can no longer relate to or or, or that I no longer care about. But Eternal Sunshine is stays the same, and to me, but just means something different, or at least. Um, I interpret it differently now. Um, and a lot of this has to do with, of course, being a, um, a young single guy who lives in a city and who has, who has had his fair share of um, relationships, some healthy, some not so much. Most of them, well, considering I'm sitting here uh, currently recording this as a single guy, I say none of which have been successful. Um, I've interpreted differently, and I kind of see instead as, um, and I think this is how um, Charlie Kaufman intended it to be interpreted, was instead of two people who kind of want to forget themselves and run off into the sunset and realize, like, hey, things are going to be shitty, but we're going to get through it. It's instead two people lying to each other and running off and thinking, like, well... The, the, the whole cycle that we've seen repeat, at least we're not, not even, we're not even seeing a cycle repeat. What we're seeing with Eternal Sunshine is two people who have just went through a loop for the first time but are going to continuously go through this loop of loving each other, hating each other, forgetting about themselves, and then repeat, you know? Um, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a cynical look at, not relationships, but it's a cynical look at two people who shouldn't be together but who are instead forcing themselves to be together. Why, why would people do that? And we know why people would do that. We know because we get lonely and because of um, factor X, Y, and Z. Or I mean, how many of us haven't been in a relationship which was ill-advised but we're in it anyway? Even while we're in the thick of it, we're thinking, I shouldn't be doing this, but because of this reason or another, because of maybe something about me or because of something about him or because of something about her, I'm going to continue with this relationship even if it kills me. And a lot of times emotionally it does kill us or psychologically it does kill us, but we do it anyway. Um, because for some reason in our minds we have this idea that it's better to be with this person than to be alone, even if that person is not good for us. And I see Eternal Sunshine instead as a story of a relationship that should not happen, that these two people are forcing to happen for some reason. And I, I say some reason generally. I mean, there are plenty of reasons in the film. But two people who are who are forcing themselves to, to get into this relationship, which isn't going to work out. So when they're frolicking on the beach at the end in the snow, throwing snow at each other, and they seem like they're very happy... I no longer get the sense of it's going to work out for them. I now get the sense of it's a shame what's going to happen to them. And there, there is, it's not so much that it's idealism anymore, but it's sort of a, a tragedy. It, it's sort of um, a broken or a, a damaged idealism. You know, it, it's, it's, it's on paper, it's wonderful what they're trying to do, but it's ill-advised that they go through with it. Um, and that's that's and yeah that that's wonderful to me at least that that there is this film which um has evolved or, or no 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 i i that's not it that this film that has 
change that I've interpreted differently as I have evolved. Something that I, I get new things out of when I watch it again, and that's wonderful. And also just because of the complexity of the production design, the cinematography, how whimsical Michel Gondry can be, there's new visual things too that I forget about or that I'm seeing for the first time when I go back and I watch it again. And that's wonderful too. Um, that it's just that any film that I can go back and, and explore new things or see new things I've never seen before, that always uh, that is always incredibly wonderful to me. So, so um, of course you. <laughs> Um, I, I have two films in a row now where you kind of uh, where you get the sense of misery is going to proliferate at the end of these stories for everybody who's involved. Things are not going to change, um, but they are <laughs> two very different stories and two very different approaches to um, to relationships, I suppose. Um, but so, yeah, but I, I got nothing else to say to that. So I'll move on to uh, my number eight fil uh, favorite film of all time. Which is, and this is the one that I think most people would probably, I don't want to say this is the one that people would probably mostly disagree with me with, but this is the one which I, I, I fully admit there is the most subjectivity going to in the sense of the reason I love this movie is so specific to me as a person, and I, I, I don't think something that is like, someone else is like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're going through, I, 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 you know, it's not like Eternal Sunshine where I saw it in college, or it's not like Texas Chainsaw where it was like, there was um, a, a fundamental, you know, punch in the teeth, if you will, of sort of what I expected, or, or, or what I had seen beforehand. Um, this one is, is, has very much to do with a very specific time and a very specific place for me. Uh, and this film is 2011's The Muppets, uh, directed by James Bobin and uh, written by Jason Siegel and Nicholas Stoller. Now, The Muppets I saw uh, when it came out as a double feature, um, not a, um, a theater-sanctioned double feature, but I went initially to see Hugo because I was writing a review for it, and then after Hugo was done, I snuck in to see The Muppets. Um, so it was a, a five-finger discount uh, double feature. But both of those movies ended up making my, my top ten of that year, but honestly, I haven't rewatched Hugo since, and I've rewatched The Muppets multiple times since then. Um, and looking back, I might even think that, you know, Hugo did not deserve to be in my top 10. I'm sure Tyler would certainly agree with me on that one. Uh, but The Muppets, I, I think maybe it was the, the, the Muppets caught me off guard, or at least I didn't know what to expect. I went into this day, that situation kind of being like, okay, I'm gonna see Hugo, and I'm gonna write about that, and then, you know, oh, the Muppets, you know, this is something that I'm curious to see, so I'll kind of sneak into it. Um, but I should also give the the context of what was happening to me um, at a specific point in my life. So that this movie came out in um, 2011. At 2011, at least the second half of 2011, was not a great time for me personally. Um, in a, uh, a three-month span from July um, July to September, um, I got I got fired from my job in July. I got broken up with in August, and then the rectors of the church that I was going to at that point, who had been there for 20 years, left. And so, sort of with a in a three-month span, like a, a lot of what I had known in terms of consistency was all of a sudden gone, financially, spiritually, and um, romantically. Everything that I had kind of gotten used to was all of a sudden had seemed like it was all of a sudden abandoned me, and I, I I felt myself reeling. All of a sudden, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was going in life. I didn't know where my priorities lay, and I didn't know what I what I believed anymore, really. And and and, and it, it was it was a bad time. I I won't I won't be so bold as to say that I was depressed, but I was certainly I was lost. 
And that is a a frightening and upsetting feeling when all of a sudden it's like you think you know what path you're on and then all of a sudden you're not there anymore and you don't have a map, you don't have a guide and you're just not sure what's important or what you should be doing and no one is telling you because you're supposed to be an adult and you're supposed to figure this stuff out on your own. Um, but it was a bad, it was a bad, very dark place for me and I just... I, 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 you know, it was one of those things where it was a struggle to get out of bed in the morning because I wasn't sure why was I getting out of bed? What, what's, what's the purpose here? Um, a lot of things that I did, I was kind of doing through autopilot or sort of routine. It's like, well, I was doing these things before, so I guess I may as well continue doing them. But I didn't really feel anything doing them, you know? I, I didn't get the same, the same pleasure, the same joy before do them so so that you know suffice it to say it was a very bad time in my life and so i guess i i you know w- snuck into the muppets kind of hoping like oh maybe i'll just get a few laughs for free and 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 that'll be that and what i ended up getting was so much more to put it cheesily i guess i what i got was was hope um i remember very distinctly that the crowd there i was not the only adult in the crowd but I was the only, I'd say, one of the only adults in the crowd who wasn't there taking his or her kids to see the movie. Um, and that was the first thing I noticed, that it was sort of, um, that there was a lot of people who were my age there that had young kids. And it, it was just kind of cool, kind of seeing, like, you know, I saw the Muppets because I, I was a fan of the Muppets when I was a kid. You know, I wasn't necessarily raised on them, but I, I watched the Muppet show, and I, I watched the Muppet Christmas Carol, and I watched a lot of the Muppet movies, and, and, um, and, and and so there was something that there was a nostalgia there that was driving me to that theater that there was something that I sort of I, I guess maybe subconsciously wanted to reconnect with because certainly what do you associate with the Muppets singing and joy and happiness and lessons and there's just a very there's there's something very positive that comes that comes from the Muppets which I which I think is is one of the reasons that that people were bringing so that so many of their kids there because it was like this is going to be good for them this is going to be friendly this is going to be something that we can both enjoy but on the other hand, it was like, but we're going to enjoy this too because this was something that meant a lot to me as a kid. And this is something that I want to share with my children as well. I kind of got that sense there because I saw how much how much the parents were enjoying themselves too during that screening. So you really do get the sense of that it was a, a multi-generational thing. That this was a property. This was a an entity that is multi-generational, that transcends age, that goes beyond social circumstances that goes beyond, you know, cities or geography or, or time. This is something that is meaningful to people, no matter what their age or, or no matter where they are in life, because this was something that, that speaks to a truth about positivity and about love and about joy. And I, I guess it, there, there was just something that was, that was wonderful that there's, um, Walter kind of gives, um, kind of gives a little speech um, about how, you know, the, 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 and I, I should have called this up to, to be able to read it. And I, I did not. And I'm sorry that I'm a little bit unprepared for this recording. Um, but essentially his speech kind of breaks down to when he was a kid, you know, he was raising the Muppets too. And he kind of said, it, as long as there's, you know, talking, you know, you know, talking bears and, and, and frogs and all that kind of stuff, there's, there's always going to be a reason to hope. There's always going to be a reason to smile. And I did get that sense from sitting there, not just watching the movie, but watching the crowd too, and seeing how happy these kids were and seeing how happy their parents were. And just kind of, it was sort of a reminder to me that like, there's stuff to be happy about in this world. There is stuff to be hopeful for. There's stuff that's going to be, you know, 
meaningful later on. You know, some of these parents, they, but maybe they had a rough go about it when they were teenagers. Maybe, maybe when they were in their 20s, things were terrible. And, and then maybe now that they have kids, they're in a much better spot. And so maybe them connecting with the Muppets is a reminder to them too, personally, that like things were dark for a long time, but but as long as there's this thing, whether it actually be Fozzie Bear, whether it be Kermit the Frog, or whether it be this movie or that song or whatever, those things aren't going to weigh or, or aren't going to go away, and they're always going to be there. And there's always going to be something to come back to. There's always going to be some reason to be optimistic and to hope. And the Muppets reminded me to hope and to be happy and to think that, and reminded me that things will be okay and things will work out and there's something just and and i mean i i legitimately think the movie is a very good movie i think it's hilarious and i think it's it's well written and it's well acted and and it was also just great kind of i don't know it, it was just great to be able to reconnect with joy in the midst of a time when things were going so badly for me and i'm not going to say that you know i walked out of the theater and and, and felt like everything was okay and i'm not going to you know, lie to you and say that, you know, after that, you know, I got a new job and everything was blah, 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 blah. It, it still took months for things in my life to, 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 you know, reconnect, to, to rebuild themselves. You know, I, I didn't find a job for months after that. Um, I didn't date for, you know, probably almost two years after that. And, and, and it took me a while for me to rebuild my, my finances, to rebuild my confidence, to sort of rebuild my worldview. But seeing the Muppets was a seminal moment in that. It was a step in that direction for me. It was at least signifying it's like, hey, things are going to be okay. They're not okay now, and they're not going to be okay for a while, but I guarantee you things are going to be fine. And this is also some sort of a bittersweet thing as well, because... I was so happy that the movie did so well financially and, and, and that there was this indication that, okay, the Muppets are going to be this property and this entity again, and it's going to be something that we can share with a new generation. And there's, there is always going to be this reminder of joy and of positivity, and, there's, there's, and the Muppets will be this evergreen thing that, yes, if I have kids someday, I'm going to take them to the, whatever Muppet movie is going to come out, and this is going to be new and exciting for them, and, and, and the, the, the pattern is going to repeat itself. And then, of course, you know, Muppets Most Wanted came out, and that wasn't so good, and I attribute that to the absence of Jason Siegel. That's just my own personal opinion. Um, and then, of course, the Muppets uh, on, uh, had that show on ABC that was short-lived that took it in kind of a new adult direction that people weren't a fan of, and it got canceled. And so it sort of seemed like also it's some, somewhat sad because the Muppets from 2011 also seemed to indicate that there was going to be this this uh this rejuvenation of of the Muppets as as an entity and as a brand and, and that they were that there's going to be this renaissance essentially and that renaissance seemed to have been short lived and who knows what's going to happen now it certainly doesn't seem like there's going to be any Muppets movies coming out in the future or at least none that are going to have you know a, a wide theatrical release but um but I don't know and I, I I try and remind myself and take comfort in the fact that even if that's not the case. This movie is not going away. This movie is not going anywhere. There's no reason why I can't return to my my DVD shelf and just pull them up. It's out and pop it in and watch it, or or listen to Man or Muppet, or listen to to Life's a Happy Song on YouTube. I, I can do that. I can return to that. Those things are not going away, or at least those things will never be permanently going away. Just like hope, just like joy, just like happiness. There are certainly moments in our lives when they are not 
present or they are not immediately uh, um, available to us, but they're never going to be gone forever. They're always going to be there in some extent. They're always going to come back in some form or another. Um, and that's what the Mupp is reminding me of, and that's why it's still, to me, a very personal movie and, and, and something that I, that I, I do dearly love, even to this day. This, of course, brings us to number seven, and if uh, this is one that I had mentioned before, which if you had followed my blogs initially, you'll know that number seven, when I first wrote it, was John Carpenter's The Thing. Number seven is no longer John Carpenter's The Thing, and it is not uh, moved up in place. In fact, John Carpenter's The Thing is no longer on this list at all. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, if you were expected, um, or if you were expecting a little bit of, a, of an analysis or a, spe- uh, a, a, a talk on... John Carpenter's fantastic 1980s practical effects horror movie. It's not as though I, I dislike that movie. I love that movie. It's just, uh, in retrospect, was kind of thinking about it, and um, it, it doesn't... The thing is sort of um, everyone's movie at this point. You know what I mean? I, I mean, it, it's sort of... Um, there's nothing that makes the thing stand out for me personally other than the fact that I just think it's a great movie. And I, and I don't think I would have been able to add much to the conversation, or at least I don't think I would have been able to say too much um, that would have spoke about me and about why I connected with the thing. So I ended up dropping that. Non- number seven is no longer the thing. I'm replacing it as number seven is uh, 1999's The Matrix, uh, written and directed by the Wachowskis, Lana and Lily. Um, and this was actually a movie, funnily enough, that was not on my list initially uh, when I considered making this this top ten favorites, uh, but was one that quickly got put back on there when I recently rewatched it and sort of realized, once again, how much I loved this movie, but then also how it speaks to me now, at this day and age, uh, you know, of being... Jim, the 32-year-old, as of recording this episode, at least, the 32-year-old who is uh, living in Brooklyn. Um, of course, I, I, I saw this in high school like everybody else did. Um, I Like I'm sure most people, I didn't really understand it. I remember my brother showing it to me on VHS tape, hey, hey, and having to, or, or, or needing him to rewind and replay um, the scene in the construct where Morpheus is explaining what the Matrix is to Neo. I think I had to watch that two or three times, and I still didn't really understand what the Matrix was. Um, of course, now I do understand what the Matrix is, um, and it is uh, much simpler, at least in concept, to explain, uh, or at least to understand. Um, and so that, I think, is really cool and short. The superficially, or at least uh, visually, or visually... Vi- Sorry, I'm trying to say vis- visually and viscerally, and I'm saying them at the same time. It's coming out as viscerally. Um, but why don't we go with that? Viscerally, there's also a lot to love about this movie. Um, the action sequences are amazing. And of course, you know, the bullet time photography, um, that, that, that was a, a groundbreaker. That was imitated and spoofed, and that, that you know, that... that became burrowed in our consciousness for a long, long time. Um, it, it's not so much a thing anymore, but even when it happens, you know, what do you immediately go to? The Matrix, of course, because they were groundbreakers with this. Um, and it was also sort of cool to see, um, because I, I actually recently rewatched this after I had watched Bound, which I had done for my podcast, I Do Movies Badly, talking about film noir. And it was really cool to see, um, if you haven't listened to that episode, it was really cool to see how... The Wachowskis have evolved, or, or how they kind of laid down uh, the roots of what they were going to be working with, what they certainly loved in regards to film noir, in regards to homage, in regards to that 
you know, old timey sort of um, aesthetic and sort of urban decay and that sort of stuff and, and how they expanded on it and used it to their two perfect devices in the Matrix, um, especially in regards to the, the, the contrast between um, the real world and the fake world. I, I think it's, it's sort of wonderful to see how those roots started growing and deepening. But the reason that the Matrix has stood out to me now, which is certainly something that I didn't, that I could not have really spoken on too much when I was a teenager when I initially first saw this, was what the Matrix says to me or, or, or how it speaks to me about my own faith and my own philosophy. Um, and I don't just mean in regards to, isn't it great that they incorporate things from, you know, elements of Christianity and, or isn't it great that they also bring in things about like, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and isn't it great that they talk about simulacra and simulation and, and these philosophical ideas that's cool I certainly love that because I I can always appreciate when when um, Grandiose ideas like that can be worked in whether in sort of a, a, a wink wink nudge nudge moment or in a way which which um, affects and Drives the plot forward. I, I certainly I certainly absolutely appreciate that but more than that I love these days how how there are parallels between my own personal faith journey and the journey of Neo as the Matrix, as the Matrix, as the main character in the Matrix. And specifically, I'm thinking of this. Um, it always bugged me when I when I watched it when I was younger that it was like, well, Neo is supposed to be the one, but then he isn't the one, and now he is the one. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, not really being able to comprehend, I guess, or reconcile that idea of him no longer believing that he is the one freeing himself up from those expectations and that pressure allows him to grow into being the actual one. Uh, we won't get into a conversation about the Dues uh, Machina in the movie because that is not important right now. What is important is that's that, that idea of Neo being able to free himself from his expectations, from the expectations on him. Neo freeing himself up from really belief allowed him to be the person he was meant to be um which is kind of funny too if you think about it because him uh I, I guess the argument could be made that him freeing himself up from his belief in fate allows him to fulfill his fate but once again that is a different discussion not for this podcast um and i found a lot of resonance in there and a lot of re uh, uh, relevance in that because of like i said my own faith journey specifically in the sense of I, I am a Christian, I am a believer, I am more firm in my beliefs now and I am more enthusiastic about my beliefs now than I ever have been at any point in my life. Even the four years that I went to private college, even the four years that I went to private high school, even, even the few years that I was um, involved in the vestry of the church that I used to go to back in New Jersey, even more so than those points in my life, I am more firm in my belief and in my involvement in my faith now than I ever have been. And what has allowed me to do that, what was sort of the thing that got me back into that, because I went through kind of a two-year period where I didn't really, I didn't really go to church, I didn't really contemplate much, I didn't really, I didn't consider myself a believer, uh, but what allowed me to get back into, not just back into the church on, on, a, on, a, on a surface level, but what really allowed me to start delighting more and exploring more of the philosophical and intellectual arguments and ideas that come with the faith was me admitting 
that everything that I believe in could be wrong. It's weird to think about it, and I'm still trying to, to make sense of it and explain it in a way myself, but what allowed me to really take joy and delight in what I was doing was admitting to myself that everything that I'm doing, not that it could be wrong, because I don't think that you're wrong if you're taking care of the poor. I don't think you're wrong if you're loving your neighbor as yourself. I don't think you're wrong if you are selfless and giving of, of yourself to other people. I don't think that's wrong, but you know, I, I guess just as idea, what if there is no God? What if there was no Jesus? What if all this, you know, these grand, the, these bigger ideas what if I'm wrong about those things? And for a while, those used to terrify me. And I, I suppose to a certain extent, there's still a part of me which is scared about that. But uh, that fear doesn't control me anymore. And I am... I, I don't know. I, I don't feel a pressure anymore about, about, about being right or being wrong. I just feel that what I'm doing is good. What I'm doing is, is, is right, whether it's because it's mandated from a higher power or not. And while I believe that it is... I don't think it would change anything about me if somehow it was proven, and this could never be done, but if somehow it was proven, hey, guess what? There is no God whatsoever. It still wouldn't really change my behavior towards people. It still wouldn't really change my actions. It still wouldn't really change what I think would make this world a better place. I guess how I sort of described it to some people was that for my entire life, in terms of my spirituality and my faith, I was sort of given a frame and forced to find a picture that fit into it. Here's the frame. This is how the world makes sense. Now make the world make sense based on this. And letting that go, and letting go of, of, of I guess, what I had been raised with, of what I had been taught to believe, letting go of the pressure of being, of being right, of feeling that I had to uphold that, that I had to prove myself right, that I had to be superior to other people letting go of all that allowed me instead to kind of get a picture to paint the picture of what i thought of the world of how i viewed the world of how the world made sense to me and found a frame that fit that instead and it's it was a much better and a much healthier way for me to to live to be happy to to try and help other people be happy as well it all started with this whole thing of just kind of thinking, you know what? It's probably not this way. Or it might not be this way. And then admitting that to myself or acknowledging that kind of freed me of the pressure of having to, having to prove anything. And, and, and so that's, that's where it you know, kind of comes back to the, to the Matrix and, and this idea of, once again, Neo kind of being told that he wasn't the one. So he no longer worries about trying to be the one. And by no longer worrying about it, he finds that he fulfills that, that he is, that he does make the world a better place, that he does fulfill this goal, this fate, whatever you want to call it, that was set up for him. He still does. He's able to achieve that only after he is able to kind of accept the fact that, no, he, he's, maybe this is all wrong. Um, that, of course, is, is a, there's a much larger discussion to be had there um, in regards to my own faith, in regards to how I view the world, that sort of stuff. And that is certainly something that I'm willing to engage with people on one-on-one, -on -one, but I, uh, I won't get into too much of it more here, or in fact, I'm not doing, going to get into any more of it here because um, this is not a, a podcast about my faith that is coming 
later <laughs> this year, I can promise you that. Uh, this is a instead a movie about or a movie, a podcast about my favorite movies, and so being at a, at a place where I currently am with my faith and with my spirituality and being comfortable in that saw an echo of that or a resonance of that when I went back to rewatch the Matrix, and that's why um, it has worked its way into my my uh, my top ten. So of course, after seven, now we have number six by rules of math, um, and so number six is 1995's Heat. Written and directed by Michael Mann. This was, uh, as, as I'm ashamed to say, was one that was also not on my initial list when I sat down to, to work it out. This one was actually initially given to uh, The Apartment, Billy Wilder's 1960 film uh, starring Jack Lemmon um, and uh, the last movie that Billy Wilder won Academy Gold for. Um, and, and I just, I just, it was one of those things, once again, that I found that as the days went by, I was not going back and rewatching The Apartment, but I was going back and rewatching Heat. And I was. Nothing was being lost on it, um, and it was just a, a, as spectacular of a, a, of a film as I can remember it being. And it was actually funny, I, I had it on DVD, lent it to a friend about two years ago. That friend has not given it back to me, Vicky. But um, my downstairs neighbor um, had an extra Blu-ray copy, so he gave me his. Um, and it's one of those movies which is so incredible that I'm wondering, why do people not talk about this movie more often? Sure, it's on IMDb's... Um, Top 100 or top 250 of all time at, at number 123, but I mean this is a this is a great movie. This is a great great movie, and and, and this is also one that I, I I've struggled with a little bit in regards to how do I talk about this movie in a way which is personal to me versus how someone else might love this movie, and and I, and there, I think there's there's less to be said about this one in regards to what does it say about Jim as a person, but I just, I, I, I love the fact that it that it's a great heist film, I love the fact that it's almost three hours long and doesn't feel long, that I, I want it to keep going, that um, I, I love the fact that I'm excited by the, the, the bank heist and the, and, the, and the gun battle, or the, the shootout in the streets of Los Angeles, I, I love the fact that that it combines two of the greatest actors of, of, of all time, you know, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, it combines them together. And I, I love how they approach the characters differently, and I love how they are two different characters, and I love how Michael Mann wrote and directed these characters, even even the minor characters, even someone as, as small as Wayne Grow, despite the fact that, yes, Wayne Grow is, is um, very important to the plot. He doesn't have a whole lot of screen time. We don't get to know a whole lot about him, but I feel like I know this guy, even with a little amount of screen time he has. I feel like Michael Mann has crafted such fantastically well-rounded and deep characters that even if all we see is Wayne Girl lounging on a bed with his shirt off, the fact that we've seen how he's overreacted during the initial um, uh, heist with him and, and, and Neil McCauley's crew, and so we know that, and then we see him lounging uh, with all of his uh, white power and, and neo-Nazi tats, and it's like, okay, I have a clear picture of who this kind of guy is. I have a clear picture of probably how he was raised. I have a clear picture of what he was like in high school. I have a clear picture of his relationship with women. I, I know a lot about this guy based on what little information I have because of how Michael Mann conveys it. Um, and, and I've never really been a fan of cops and robbers movies. I've never really been a fan of procedurals. Um, but it would be unfair to call Heat a cops and robbers movie, and it would certainly be inaccurate to consider it a, a procedural. But I certainly do love this idea of not even moral gray, but I guess sympathy towards the other side of the coin because you have um, Neil McCauley and you have Vincent Hanna and they're both very good at what they do um, and they are, are enemies of each other, but they have such a, a, a respect 
for each other. Um, not necessarily for what each other does, but there, but you know, there's just a respect of like you, you do what you do and you do it very well. And there's also an acknowledgement that it's not just, I don't just see you as a cop or I just don't see you as a robber. I see you as a person who also happens to be playing the role of a cop. I see you as a person who also happens to be playing the role of a robber. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, I'm sure, with uh, with systems and which how their lives have led them. And eventually they got to a point where it's like, this is what I... This is what I do. I can't do anything else anymore because I do this and I'm very good at it and I don't want to try doing anything else because what else is there to do? And there's sort of a, I, I almost sort of see like a subtle or subconscious sort of fatalism or acceptance that, hey, maybe life could have turned out differently for us, but this is who we are now and that's who we have to be. Um, and maybe they don't, <laughs> Maybe they don't both love what they do. I'm, I'm scanning my memory right now and trying to think if there are lines where Hannah specifically says that he loves being a cop or that Macaulay loves, you know, Robin Banks. And um, I don't know if they explicitly said they both talk about how they're, they're very good at what they do and they don't want to do anything else. But I do get the sense that there is that they've both accepted like they can't do anything else, that they have to be doing this. And they recognize that in each other. You know, Hannah recognizes that Macaulay can't can't be a legitimate businessman, and Macaulay recognizes that there's no other career path where Vince and Hannah would excel or succeed or not be considered crazy. And I think they sort of see acceptance of that in each other, and I sort of love that, and I sort of love looking at people as people more so than just what role they've been cast in in life or what role they've chosen for themselves just because they are a good person or a bad person. I don't want to use those labels at all. Just because they are a cop or a bank robber or just because they are a lawyer or a garbage man or a nurse or a bartender doesn't mean that that's who that person is. That person is more than that role that they are playing. And I think Michael Mann... Uh, recognizes that, and Michael Mann, you know, comes about on that story, on that re revelation, in a in a in a way that he understands, which is cops and robbers, which is coming from a background of things like Miami Vice and, and police shows and that kind of thing. And it's it's um it's also it's just always a very exciting movie, and I, I'm I'm o I am always amazed by how I can watch a movie time and time again that I've seen time and time again and still have the same emotional responses time and time again. I know how that initial um, armored uh, armored car robbery is going to play out. I know how the bank heist is going to play out. I know that Natalie Portman's character is going to try and kill herself. And I know all these things are going to happen. I know the jokes that are going to come, and the jokes are still funny, and the, the, gun sh the shootout is still exciting, and Natalie Portman's suicide attempt is still heartbreaking, and the fact that Vincent and his girlfriend or, or wife can't make it work is still heartbreaking to me, and the fact that... Neil Macaulay leaves the woman that he he allegedly loves behind. That's no that's that's always gonna be heartbreaking for me. It's always it, it's just art which has allowed me to feel exactly what I always feel, and I and I, I love that. It doesn't get any. It, it doesn't lessen itself, or it hasn't been. I haven't become numb to it. And I love that. And you know what? I'm also gonna say maybe there's something about my my first exposure to this movie because I'd say of all these movies. This is probably the one that I saw f when uh, this was the one that, I, that, that my first exposure to it when I was the youngest. Um, I think I may have been in sixth grade uh, when this movie came out on VHS. My oldest brother at the time was working as a uh, was working at a video rental store. Remember those? They were cute. 
Um, and Heat was on two tapes. It was on two VHS tapes that he had stolen from the store. Well, <laughs> I don't know if he had stolen them from the store. I think the store had gone out of business and he took those um, for his own once the store was closing and there was kind of a fire sale. And I sat down and I watched this with him on a Friday afternoon. Sorry, Saturday afternoon. Also thinking about it, I don't think I was in sixth grade because it was in the house that we didn't move to until I was in eighth grade. So it might have been, it might have been, wow, it might have been when I was an eighth grader or freshman in high school. Either way, I was, I was significantly younger than I am now. And he just said, hey, do you want to watch this movie? And I said, what is it? He said, it's Heat. And I think all he said was that it has Al, both Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in it. Um, and even though I was not intimately familiar with them, I was at least aware enough of them as a cultural presence that I thought, well, this is probably something I should watch with my older brother who is seven years older than me and I want to, and I want to appear like I'm cool. And I watched it and I loved it. Um, cause yeah, it, it was exciting. Um, and it was long, but it didn't feel long. And I just, I, I wanted more and I wanted more and I wanted more. And so maybe there's something to be said about my first exposure to it being a, a, uh, a, a time of bonding with an older sibling that I, had not had a lot of bonding time with. I guess I'll let a, I'll, I guess I'll let my therapist decide that. But um, that is uh, that is heat. That is number six. So of course it leads us to number five, <clears throat> which is 2006's Children of Men, uh, directed by Alfonso Cuarón, written by wow, just a, a, a laundry list of people here: Alfonso Cuarón, Timothy J. Sexton, David Arada, Mark Fergus, and Hawk Ostby. Um, Children of Men was a was one of the first movies that I ever was able to read the script first and then see the movie and kind of get that idea or, or kind of really see some application as to what does a film look like as an idea as words on a page and then how does someone interpret those ideas? Um, now, of course, Coron being the director and one of the co-writers also, he I'm sure he was very instrumental not I'm sure. I know he was very instrumental in writing it in such a way where he knew where those ideas were going to come from, or at least what those ideas were going to look like. Uh, but I didn't. I certainly, when I read, I'm like, this is a, a a great story set in the future, a wonderful little sci-fi premise with some heart in it and some wonderful relationships. And then what Alfonso Cuarón brought to it was all that, um, but also just one of the most visually stunning movies of the last, well. I guess, yeah, it's about a decade, but maybe over the last 20 years. This is a, a fantastically stunning movie, and also one um, that is one of those... Um, I can't even say it's a rare movie that does it, because I, I feel like a lot of sci-fi dystopian movies try and do this now, but certainly one of the best movies when it comes to here are the problems of the future, look at the, look at the roots of where they come from today. Uh, because in Children of Men, there's a lot of allusions to Abu Ghraib, um, to fears and paranoia about immigration, and uh, to a, 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 f a future that we seem to be moving towards in the sense of, um, of, of um, political and geographical isolation and just, um, if not all-out war warfare, then a, a staggering lack of hope for the future. Um, and that, at least in Children of Men, that staggering hope of, of a staggering lack of hope for the future comes from the fact that babies are no longer being born. So we are sort of dealing with this fate um, of our own demise as mankind, because once we're, you know, once the, old, the youngest one of us dies off, um, what else is left? 
and there's that, and I certainly love that. Um, I, I think there's also something that um, I think I have a fondness for Clive Owen, despite the fact that if you look at his resume, he, he's overwhelmingly not given as much reason to believe in him as a leading man. Uh, I remember seeing Gentleman and thinking that like this is this is gonna be it for Clive Owen. This is gonna be his big breakthrough. P- people are gonna start casting him in more stuff. He's gonna be great. Um, people didn't start casting more stuff, and the stuff that he was casting, he was not great. Um, and I think I've kind of had to accept that maybe Clive Owen is just not that good of an actor, but at least he was very good in this movie. Um, and I just, you know, I love seeing what a great director can do with uh, with talent that is provided him. But there's also, um, you know, and, and this has been said time and time again, uh, that um, Children of Men uh, is one of those movies where it's sort of like, it, it's a, it's set in the, the, the future, and it's not the, the distant future, because it's only 2027, so it's only... Matthew, 11 years from now, um, but it's one of those movies where it seems like there's some technological advancements, but um, but it, it's a future that we can believe in, because it's not that there's flying cars or, tele- or teleportation or, um, you know, Minority Report-esque uh, readout computer screens, but there's, um, w- but what is the future going to bring us? What are the things that, you know, technology is sort of up in the air because it, it, it advances fast, but not nearly as fast as, as people would, would like to believe it does. Um, but what does the future bring? What do we know it's going to bring? Well, it's, pro- it's probably going to bring more people because population growth is something that w- which does happen. Um, and along with more people becomes um, stress on food supplies. Uh, with more people becomes people, um, you know, leaking across borders and with people coming across borders becomes, uh, you know, sort of a, a fear of outsiders, which leads to hostility, which leads to um, governments enacting policies against certain people that some people would say is discriminatory and some people would say is necessary to protect the homelands. Uh, so Children of Men was a, an eerily accurate look into a future that was, in retrospect, easy to predict that it would turn out that way because of because of people because of how because of human nature and i say that somewhat cynically even though children of men is a, a very hopeful film it ends on a, a wonderful note it ends on a beautiful note a note of of um self not even self sacrifice but at least a, just a, on a note of things are going to be okay it is also a visually stunning movie because of, of Alfonso Cuaron and, and, the, and the fantastic work, oh my god, of Emmanuel Lubezki as a cinematographer. Uh, I could talk for a long time about the single takes. Um, I will not because uh, I, I think that that's, safe, that's better safe for a larger discussion. This one is also, I must say, one of those where I don't know how much I can say about it in regards to what it means to me personally as much as... Um, because a lot of people think it's a great movie. Um, I'm sure a lot of people think it, or you know, consider it as one of their favorite movies as well. But I think, I think one of the reasons that it became my favorite movie was the fact that it, it was one of those things where I was so certain of its greatness, and I didn't necessarily see at the time support for that. Um, I remember seeing this movie in a theater with a with a friend of mine, and after it was done, there was somebody behind us that just said something about like, well. 
goodbye, there goes your Oscar. And I, and I guess saying something about, I don't know, maybe how it ends a little bit abruptly, I wasn't really sure what his uh, what where, what motivated that comment, but I I had the opposite reaction where I just thought like give this movie all of the Oscars immediately. I have just seen the most mind blowing fantastic movie um, that took me in directions I didn't expect just based on the script that I had read. And then the Oscar you know nominations came out and the ceremony came out and Children of Men didn't really win anything. It, it certainly got its nominations and let's see going back through here. Uh, writing for adapted screenplay, uh, cinematography, and editing, um, but I was generally surprised that it didn't get a, a, a Best Picture nomination because I certainly thought that it, it deserved to win Best Picture over certainly over The Departed, which don't get me wrong, I love Martin Scorsese. I'll get more to that in a minute. Um, but I, I was wondering why is nobody talking about Children of Men? Why is everyone talking about The Departed or Little Miss Sunshine or? Um, was it Flags of Our Fathers or, or Sands of Iwo Jima at that point? But one of those Clint Eastwood movies. Or Babel. Why are people talking about those movies and why are people not talking about Children of Men more? And so I think, in a way, maybe it was um, an early example of cinematic confirmation bias for me. In the sense of, I love this movie so much and I kept hearing people talking about why every other movie was so great that I sort of dug my heels like, no, f you, Children of Men. Um, and I also still believe to this day, as much as I love Pan's Labyrinth, and as much as I love Guillermo Lavaro, and as much as I love Guillermo del Toro, I still think Children of Men should have gotten the Oscar over, uh, for Best Cinematography over Pan's Labyrinth. But Emmanuel Lubezki has plenty of Oscars. He doesn't need my endorsement at this point. But yeah, th this was one of those movies that I guess it was, um, and this is a, an idea I'll talk about more a little bit later too, that this is one of those, like, Children of Men was sort of one of those, like, well, maybe this one's mine, you know? People certainly love it, uh, but I don't know if I've met anyone who, who loves it nearly as much as I do. And so I think instead it's sort of like I, I kind of looked around and saw that maybe I was maybe I was kind of on my own in this one. So I'm like, fine, you know, this one this one's gonna be mine. Children of Men is gonna be my thing. And if nobody's on board with it, that's okay because I have the Blu-ray. I can pop it and watch it anytime. <gasps> oh man, maybe I should watch that. I, I just recently bought a very large screen TV, and so now I'm thinking I should probably. Um, christen it with this movie uh i don't know why that thought hasn't occurred to me in the first place but yeah children of men was just kind of one of those things where like i i saw it and i was blown away by it and i kept expecting people to be blown away with it with uh, along with me and they weren't and so i just kind of like well okay this is mine then i guess this is just gonna be my thing um i i, I don't know how much else i can i can say i can add to that really um although i will say that i think uh if you've also read the book, uh, P.D. James's Children of Men, upon which the, the, the movie is based, I think it is one of those, I'll say rare examples in which I think the movie is better than the book upon which it's based. That may be sacrilegious to some of you, but that's just what I think, and I'm going to stand by my ground because, after all, this is my top ten favorite movies of all time and not yours. Number four is another movie that I honestly can't really remember when I first saw it. But it's one that I've seen time and time again, um, <laughs> and is a uh, is one that I'm always I always bring along if if I'm going somewhere and I, I kind of people are like bring some movies bring some movie options. Uh, this one is always is always one of them. No matter who the person is, no matter where we're going, this is always one that I bring with me. And this is um, uh, 1977's Annie Hall, co-written uh, by Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman, and directed, of course, by Woody Allen. And now. In the past few years, uh, my thoughts on Woody Allen as a person have certainly changed. 
um, or at least I am I am not sure I should say what I think of him as a person certainly with all these allegations that have come out against him none of which can maybe necessarily be proven although if you ask me uh, between the allegations and some regular themes and tropes that he goes back to in its film uh, in his films it's sort of all the circumstantial evidence that I need but um, I say that of course uh, or not of course but I say that thinking that Annie Hall has been one of those titles that has not been affected uh, at least in regards to how my feelings on him as a person have changed because when, when, when stuff like that happens you tend to kind of look back on the work that they've done and it can sometimes cast a shadow over some of the stuff that they some of their works because then you kind of think like oh it's clear to me now I see it here here and here but Annie Hall um, has uh, has sort of escaped that fate and perhaps that's just due to the fact that um, it was before he met Mia Farrow and it was um, before, although he did do Manhattan shortly after this one, and and, and the, the the movie depicts a relationship between two um, consenting adults, so maybe that's why, and maybe that could be seen as excuses for some people. And I I will say there is validity to that. But Annie Hall, um, even more so than the the Woody Allen presence, um, is a favorite of mine because of just what it what it generally speaks to about relationships, specifically in New York City, and also just. Um, its attitude towards um, relationships, and specifically towards relationships that don't work out. Um, Annie Hall is a movie that I, I don't know, I'm still to this day, I'm not sure if it's a great date movie because it does depict a, a relationship that is, that does not work out, but it also is incredibly funny and incredibly insightful. Um, as a New Yorker, I certainly appreciate that it is, um, that there is sort of that, not a self-loathing, but there is a, 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 a general criticism of New York and the people that live there, but in an endearing way, in the way of sort of, um, in the way that someone who only lives in New York could be able to criticize it, um, which is also funny because then I also enjoy the, the parts where they poke fun of Los Angeles because I myself poke fun of Los Angeles frequently, despite the fact that I do not live in Los Angeles. I have never lived in Los Angeles, and if all goes according to plan, I will never live in Los Angeles. Sorry, Tyler, that's just how it works. Um, but Annie Hall, I think it, it was a was a an important movie for my I, I guess sort of how I developed and approached uh, relationships and dating uh, because a lot of movies, especially a lot of mainstream movies that you that you see, will kind of depict something magical and something perfect and and will kind of give you the end of the story. So once they get together, it's ending with the implication that everything is going to be okay, they're going to live happily ever after, and relationships are perfect all the time. And that, of course, is not the case. Now, I don't need something like Blue Valentine, uh, which is wretchedly depressing and which depicts a relationship falling apart and the end of it, but I do appreciate a middle ground, or I do appreciate a film that explores this idea that sometimes relationships just don't work out. Sometimes two people just aren't meant to be together, and that's not a good or a bad thing. There are good things that can come of it, and there are bad things that can come of it, but sometimes there are just two different people who, you know, they're going on their own path in life, and their paths converge, and then, you know, sometimes those paths then separate again, and they go their separate ways to never really connect again, and, and, and there's a what I love about Annie Hall specifically is the reverence that it has to recognizing the how special and the significance that a, a certain person and a certain relationship and certain moments can have in the formation of your own life. 
we see that um, Annie Hall has an effect on Alvy Singer. We see that, uh, you know, certainly at the end, the, the play that he's working on is very autobiographical based on the relationships that they had. And we certainly see that he looks fondly back on the relationships and has even tried in other relationships to sort of emulate certain scenes and certain things that have made that that made their relationship significant and that made their relationship sort of have a, a magical quality to it but they he can't duplicate that 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 can never be duplicated that can never be done again that can never be experienced again because it was just a time and a place um and I guess if you, you know, you could be mournful about that. You could choose to be mournful and say, well, it's so sad that these two people couldn't make it work out. Or you could also just sort of, you know, um, you could also just sort of uh, recognize that there was a, a, a beauty to, to what they shared. And, and both of their lives will have been affected by each other. And because of that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad that they are that they're parting because... I'm trying to phrase this in a way which doesn't make it seem so um, objectifying or um, I don't know what what the word is. I'm, I'm, I'm at the moment I can't think of it, but um, I, I don't mean to think of it. I don't want this to come across as though it's saying like you know well, relationships are all about what you can get from people, but certainly some people come into our lives and they change you and. Like I said, it can be good or bad, but but they are formative and they are significant because they have formed you. They are significant. They are worth remembering and they are worth cherishing because of, you know, your life has gone in a different direction because of meeting them and how there's a beauty and how there's a magical, uh, a magicalness, a magic uh, to that and how that itself is worth celebrating. The fact that you knew this person to begin with. Um, and, and yeah, also just, I guess there's some part of me which has, has gone through his fair share of failed relationships and wanting to think that there's something out there which is saying, it's fine and it's cool that you've been in failed relationships. Because relationships don't, you know, there's not always a happy ending, there's not always a sad ending. Sometimes things just end. And there is something comforting about that, something that I, that I can certainly relate to, something which I, which I find catharsis in. Um, but I also don't want to downplay how, how hilarious Annie Hall is. Annie Hall is one of the funniest screenplays I think I've ever encountered. I don't want to say it's the funniest movie I've ever seen, but it is, it is absolutely fantastic. And it's also great just to kind of, you know, follow around a guy who, yeah, he's got his, his, his own neuroses. He's got his things which make him tick. And it's just wonderful kind of seeing a relationship in which the, the protagonist, the main character, doesn't have it all together. In fact, has it far from all together. Um... Because I, I, I'm, I, it, it can be intimidating sometimes to hear stories or to see stories or to see films about people where it's like, here's this perfect person who has a flaw and overcomes that claw, claw, who overcomes that flaw to become an even more perfect person. Uh, but what is much more realistic, what I am much more fascinated in, um, are the stories of the people who are who are very flawed, who um, find someone else who not completes them, but who finds someone else that, that they can be with, be you know, despite or, or in spite of their flaws, or perhaps that their flaws are something which makes the the relationship a little bit more exciting. I, I just I, I I'm more intrigued in by and and I can engage with more the idea of imperfect people being imperfect with each other working at things with each other because that's a more realistic depiction and 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 there there i i wouldn't necessarily say that um 
in terms of plot and in terms of execution, there's not a verisimilitude uh, with Annie Hall. You know, you can't actually pull Marshall McLuhan from behind a movie poster uh, or, or that sort of thing. But but there is still, but the parts which are more realistic are those emotional parts. Um, Woody Allen, despite what he has become, despite what you know how great or not great some of his more recent work has been, has been capable of some amazing insight and some real talent in regards to recognizing what it is to be what it is to be a human being uh, specifically what it is to be a vulnerable human being with somebody else and that's something that I can that I can absolutely relate to because I, and, and I love that idea or I love the, the blending of the comedy and drama of how those two are always in very close proximity with each other and sometimes the giving out of one often leads to the other but also just recognizing that Knowing someone, caring about someone, being so intimate and vulnerable with someone and sharing so much with somebody is going to lead to a plethora of both things. There's going to be plenty of bright and happy and, and comedic moments. And there's going to be some which are going to be tragic and dramatic and upsetting. and Or even the recognition that because they are dramatic to that person, they could be comedic to someone else. Or if they are comedic to one person, they could be dramatic to someone else. And, and, just, and that is also something that Woody Allen has been great at, is that recognition of how of how married comedy and drama are with each other. Um, and that's, that's, that's why I, I, I that's why I, I love Annie Hall. And that's why I love, I, I will continue to love Annie Hall. And I will continue to show it to other people. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, I guess, uh, to, to get a little bit therapeutic, I suppose there's always, there, there's a little bit of a part of me who has been tempted to show this to people or wanted to show this to people on dates to kind of maybe get across the message like, Hey, Hey, things are, I'm not going to be a perfect person. We're not going to have a perfect relationship, but we can at least still enjoy each other. And we can still learn things and, and, and change things from each other. Um, who knows? Maybe that's uh, also why my relationships haven't worked out. Um, although I, I, I do want to specify and say that I have actually never shown. Wait, have I? I w I'm not entirely comfortable saying that I've never shown Annie Hall on a date to someone, but I have recommended it to many people. I have shown it to many people, and for days and days and days and days, but for, for years to come, I will continue to to recommend Annie Hall to people. So, Okay, we're in the home stretch now, the final three, and hopefully, um, well, these are, you know, there, there's no reason to, to preface any of this. I'll just, I'll just get right into it. You, you've stuck with me for this long. Hopefully, uh, so you know, might as well just just ride the rest of it out. So, my number three favorite film of all time is 2004 Shaun of the Dead, uh, directed by Edgar Wright, co-written by him and Simon Pegg. This was a movie that I saw in college uh, that we. I think it was a blind buy, honestly, um, that I had heard a lot about it, and so I purchased it and I watched it with a bunch of friends. And similar to Children of Men, I, I was blown away and I loved it, and I was really confused as to why my friends uh, did not love it the same way that I did. Um, I was riding real high at that time on anything that had to do with zombies and George Romero, so of course I, this was something that's like, oh, a zombie movie? Sure, take it in. And like, oh, British? This sounds kind of fun. Why don't I check it out? I'd never really heard of Edgar Wright up to that point. I certainly never heard of Simon Pegg that point. So this was a wonderful introduction into a world that I would continue to derive such joy and pleasure from for years and years to come. Um, but, but Shaun of the Dead, I think, is... Hmm. This is kind of bold, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Shaun of the Dead, I think, may be a perfect film. I'm going to leave, let that hang in the air <laughs> for a little bit. Um, I don't know. It, it's just, it is a... You can look at it as really a, a, a how how to how a how to or, or 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 exemplary of 
pretty much anything. It, it, editing, um, writing, um, acting, uh, comedic timing, um, how to you know how to compose you know compose shots or or or, or, or compose scenes together. There, there, this is. You can pull something from all this. This is like this is a, a movie that I think should be shown in film school because of how how it typifies so many different elements of film production, um, and also how man the heart about the story. How to do homage well? You know how often do we kind of see films which you know they they wear their heart on the sleeve a little bit too much, or they try and you know jam a reference in there when it doesn't really make sense. But all the stuff in Shaun of the Dead, you know the things that they that they clearly love. Um, work into the narrative and, and it's also great that it, it's a wonderful parody oh my god the more I just think about this the more I say stuff out loud the more I just realize oh man maybe maybe this should have been considered for my number one favorite film of all time but no I have to stand by I have to stand by what I said and I have to stand by this ranking for now this may change a year from now I'm not really sure this may change you know the next time I watch on the dead I'm not really sure but um Shaun of the dead it, it was uh, okay I, I could go on and on and on about the craft behind it but I, I'm hoping that if you're listening to this you don't need to be convinced of of the quality of Shaun of the dead I'm hoping nobody needs to be convinced of the quality of Shaun of the dead Shaun of the dead is one of those movies that, we're getting into into the top three here I guess the one thing that holds all these three together um, is that you know for for, for I'm, I'm gonna say 10 through four. If there are people like, well, I don't really like this movie for X, Y, and Z, to a certain extent, I could maybe understand why they're saying things like that. Um, maybe not Heat as much. That That's a weird one. Uh, not a weird one, but that's one where I, I'd probably take umbrage of those. But for these top three, at least, if there's someone who is like, oh, I've seen that movie, I really didn't like it, I would be legitimately baffled as to why they did not care for it. Because to me, these films are so exemplary of filmmaking in every single regard but what made Shaun of the Dead or what stood out to Shaun of the Dead for me as an early favorite and one which I still love to this day is how it seemed to I don't want to say justify the slacker life but how it seemed to I don't know uh, how it, 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 it was at least a a story of, of a guy who rose from being a slacker to being the hero in order to gain the right to be a slacker again. Um, and there was something that I really loved about that. Be, being someone who was a slacker for most of his life, including college, especially in college, how many of us can relate to that? But then now in my adult professional life too, where it's going to be one of those, where it's one of those things now where there's no one telling me what to do. There's no one to guide me. There's no one who's going to say, this is what you have to do to succeed, or this is what you have to do in order to to, to do things that are right or, or you know it, it's sort of when, when we become adults it's on us we have to figure out our own way in life we have to figure out what's important to us we have to figure out how how to best pursue a path which is going to get us into achievement maturity responsibility and at the beginning of Shaun of the Dead Shaun is not that person Shaun is very stagnant he's working in a, a dead-end job he he is losing the relationship with the with the love of his life because he is he has no ambition because he he does things he he just does the routine he does the bare minimum you know he 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 doesn't he doesn't do any more than is necessary and that's something that i can certainly relate to but of course when the time comes you know when it comes time to not saving the world but you know taking care of and saving and looking after the ones that he loves he rises to the occasion he becomes a leader he becomes admirable he becomes the hero he he is he fulfills whatever promise there was. Was he becomes you know the, the standard leader, 
And then after it's done and after the world goes back to the way it is, he goes back to being a slacker. Not because, you know, not necessarily because of, of, of it, this is the way I interpret it, not necessarily because of being a slacker is better or because he wants to uh, escape from anything, but just like he proved it, you know? Like he was always criticized for being a slacker for not achieving much, and then when the time came, he proved his doubters wrong. He achieved what he had, you know, what, what he set out to achieve. He was, he was capable of, of rising to the occasion. And it, it also, you know, so as someone who is a little bit of a slacker or someone who is a little bit laid back and can be relaxed a little bit times, it's, it's not often the times it's like, oh, we're lazy or we're escaping from something. Sometimes it's just, man, sometimes it's just not worth putting all this effort into it. But then when the time comes, we can rise to the occasion. We can achieve it. We can, we are capable of, of being successful. We are capable of, of achieving our goals. We are capable of being those kind of people that, that people want us to be. And then, hey, because we can do that, just let us be ourselves, you know? And sometimes ourselves just entails, you know, I don't want to go out tonight. I, I, I want to sit on the couch and just watch Netflix all day, you know? It's not that they're a slacker. It's not that we're incapable. It's just that, hey, you know, we pick our battles. Um, Sean is, is kind of a slacker, but he's a slacker that can, you know, that can do it when it needs to be done. And doesn't that earn him the right to kind of like, not be on all the time? Doesn't that earn him the right to just sort of be himself? That's what I really liked about Shaun of the Dead. Was It, it, it is that idea of like, sure, it, it is a, a, a fantastic zombie movie. It's a fantastic parody. It's a fantastic comedy. There's, But once again, I don't want to hit on, on, on the execution, the technique too much, because that stuff to me speaks for itself. But Shaun of the Dead is a story of someone who isn't necessarily marginalized, but it is certainly people don't think too much of him because of like, well, he hasn't, he doesn't fit our model of success. He doesn't, he doesn't fit into what we think of to be the person who is, who has achieved anything, who has, who has gained, who has gained maturity. Um, and sure, there, there is a journey of like, he has to find himself too. I, I mean, it, it's not as though Sean is the most confident person at the beginning, but it's also sort of, I don't know, there's something so comforting and, 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 and cathartic, I think about seeing him at the end of just like, once everything is done and him and Liz are, are on the couch watching TV with each other and, you know, it's like, what's the plan for the day? And the plan is essentially to lounge out, watch television and not do anything. And he's earned that. He's earned that because he knows that because Liz knows, because he knows, because everyone else knows that he is more than that. He is capable of so much more than that. But just, hey, here in this time, right here, right now, that's what he's going to do. That's what he's going to be. That's what he enjoys. Just let him enjoy it. So yeah, I guess there's part of me uh, that really enjoys Shaun of the Dead because of how it, <laughs> how it uh, empathizes with a slacker, but a guy who is not a slacker all the time, because Ed is a slacker all the time. Ed is not the hero of the story. Um, Sean is the hero, and, and Sean acts the part of the hero, but he acts the part of the hero so that he can then go back to acting the part of just you know laid back. And that's something that I that I. Really, really appreciate. Wow! And now I'm going through all these, and I'm kind of talking about these. And like, I, I want to watch all these movies again. Um, and you know, starting with Children of Men, going to Shaun of the Dead. Oh my God! All these movies are so good. But okay, number two, my number two favorite film of all time, 1990s Goodfellas, directed by Martin Scorsese, co-written by Nicholas Pileggi and Martin Scorsese. Um, Goodfellas again. I don't really know when I saw this movie for the first time, and I, 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 I'm going to say this too. For number one, I don't know when I saw that movie for the first time as well, but for both of these movies, 
um, as well and as well as number three. It was really college in which I really kind of started appreciating what these movies were and what these movies did. And Goodfellas, actually, funnily enough, my my appreciation for it actually kind of at least uh, in you know involved a little bit of scorn, not for the movie but for the fans of the movie because. If you remember your college days, there's a um, there's a few there's a few movie posters that you're going to regularly see on people's walls. Um, some of which are going to be movies that I don't care much for. Some of which are going to be uh, movies which you kind of you know if you have a film friend, a cinephile, that kind of thing, you're going to see these regular ones. And, and, and I, I'm not explaining myself. Basically, what I'm trying to say is there's. Um, you know, kind of in the middle of Venn diagram of movies that bros like and movies that film fans like. In the middle of that Venn diagram, you're going to see a few recurring titles: uh, Fight Club, uh, Gladiator, Braveheart, uh, Scarface, and then Goodfellas. Maybe not so much Scarface. Scarface, is, from the people that I talk to, Scarface is. As time goes by, people like that one less and less. Uh, but those movies are, you know, and, and there, there's more. Feel free to contribute your own. Uh, but those are the kind of movies that you sort of see, whether it's like kind of a douchey guy who lives down the hall and, you know, says bro too much and, you know, wears backward hats, or whether it's going to be, you know, the, the guy or the girl who kind of um, spend all night in the editing lab or who, you know, read film analysis. It's not uncommon to see those movies on both of those people's walls. And I, I don't really care for Gladiator too much. I don't care for Braveheart too much. I, I do love Fight Club, but... Um, What's just interesting to me is at least that that intersection between art and commerce and how Goodfellas succeeds at both. Goodfellas su succeeds at being, you could call it, I don't want to call it pulp, but there is certainly a mainstream appeal and there is an art house appeal to it as well. Um, and that is that is because of Martin Scorsese, because of who he is, because of the environment that he was raised in, because of, you know, being a guy who, who was raised amongst like a blue collar neighborhood, you know, among the common people and, and was influenced by and raised in what they love. But also was a guy who loved the French New Wave and also was a guy that went to film school. And so how these two worlds, I don't even want to say collide, but how these two worlds combine into each other and what, you know, how how infrequently that happens these days and what filmmaker could have done it the way that Martin Scorsese did because um, sure there is something on the surface there's you know it's a gangster film and there's violence and there's that idea of a, of a fraternity and something that's masculine about it and you know and, and, and men you know rising to power and, and you know there's something there's something kind of chest beating about that which I can certainly understand if not the if not the appeal, then I can certainly understand the, the, the desire for things about that, you know? But then there's also Thelma uh, Schoonmakers like, um, you know, chaotic editing near the end. There's the, the single long take of them walking into the Copacabana. There's the uh, fantastic performances. There's the wonderful cinematography. There's the way that music and image are married together in this movie as is you know, uh, standard of pretty much all Scorsese movies. And there's also this, this idea of power, but then also the, the downfall from it and how the people who are, who were powerful at the end of the film are shells of their former selves. And so, and, and it is a cautionary tale. And so the, there are those two sides to it. And I love how it explores both those sides and how this is one of those rare movies, which pretty much, which can sort of have a universal enjoyment and how different demographics of people can really get enjoyment out of the same story. Um, you know, I talked earlier with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and this idea of how 
art can change as you change, but it's also wonderful to kind of see like art that can mean different things to different people. How I can have a conversation with you about what I draw from it, and then you can have a conversation with me, and there's something entirely different that I either that I either didn't consider or I didn't even notice. Um, and, and that's that is fantastic. I love that. Um, and it also is, and it's also one of those movies where it's just. I mean, the, the cast is is phenomenal from beginning to end, and it's also just, <laughs> it is also kind of um, strange because it's one of these movies where you'd think, based on this, that Ray Liotta would be a bigger, a bigger power these days. But instead, Ray Liotta is showing up in you know in tequila or vodka commercials, and and Ray Liotta didn't certainly not have the career of Robert De Niro or of Joe Pesci, and you kind of wonder. Not what went what went wrong with Ray Liotta, but I don't know. Was this an anomaly? And it seems like it certainly kind of is, to a certain extent, a, a, a an anomaly in Ray Liotta's career. And that I think speaks to something about Martin Scorsese and what Martin Scorsese can coax out of people. You know, a great director working with actors will often get great performances. Paul Servino too. I mean, I you know, Paul Servino. I'm not going to say Paul Servino is a bad actor, but just based on Goodfellas, which was really the first movie that I can remember kind of seeing Paul Servino in as a presence. I just kind of got the sense that Paul Sorvino is a presence, that he is always going to be this kind of guy in every movie that he's going to be acting in, um, and that's not the case. Sometimes he's, like I said, sometimes it's a bad performance in, in a bad movie, sometimes it's a okay performance in like a forgettable movie, but Paul Sorvino has had his career as a, you know, of ups and downs as a character actor, and but in this one, but in Goodfellas, because of the kind of character that was written for him, because of the kind of direction that Martin Scorsese brings to the story, Paul Sorvino just, just, he was monumental in this movie, you know, he was a force in this movie, even with what little he did and what little he had to say, it was just, I, I felt, I felt the Pauly character as being this figure that cast a shadow over everybody else, and of course, you know, what can I say about De Niro as James Conway, um, and Joe Pesci as Tommy DeVito, that hasn't already been said, I'm not really going to add anything to the conversation, uh, suffice it to say that they are both obviously fantastic. And also, I, I talked a little bit about this with The Matrix, but just what what this movie added to the cultural zeitgeist. I mean, hell, before I, before I had even seen Goodfellas, I had seen Goodfeathers, you know, on the Animaniacs, which was, of course, a spoof of Goodfellas. Side note also, it, it's amazing to me how much the Animaniacs as a cartoon show for kids spoke to adults, but that's neither here nor there. Um... But I mean, just that that idea of 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 good feathers, you know, even even being influenced to the point of like of being featured in in, in a cartoon, or even that that uh, the cinematic technique of let me see, is it is it dolly in and zoom out, or zoom in and dolly out? I forget which one it is. I, I think it's I think it's zoom in dolly out. Uh, but the conversation between uh, Jimmy Conway and Henry Hill in the diner, of course, is iconic. You know what I'm talking about now? I, I mean, it's. That, that will live on and that, that that has influenced other filmmakers and then has shown up in other movies. And, and sure, yes, I, I admit Spielberg did that first in Jaws in the 1970s, but um, and, and both of those shots are, are, it's the same technique, but iconic for different reasons and, for, and in a different context. You know, uh, it, it certainly in Jaws, it's, you, you get the sense of immediate danger. And in Goodfellas, it's, it's, a, um, it's a longer, and, and uh, it, it's a longer move that takes a little bit more time to play out. And it leads instead to kind of a sense of paranoia and, and really visually accents this, how these things, how, the, how this, this world, this, you know, this world of, of being a gangster is falling apart around Henry Hill. Um, and and it, it, is, it, always, it is always kind of funny to me for people who 
hold up Goodfellas and, and Scarface to these two titles specifically as sort of, um, you know, what it means to be a gangster, what it means to be top of the hill, what it means to succeed, because both of those stories are about um, the rise and the fall. Um, and what's great about these movies and what's great about Goodfellas is how Scorsese takes it, how he makes the rise seem so exhilarating and how he makes the fall seem so imminent and stressful and I guess I already said this with imminent, but just, and, 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 uh, I don't know. It's, it's two halves of them. It's two halves of a movie, both of which have, have just such strong feelings associated with them. And that, that's, that says something about Goodfellas. Um, that says something about Martin Scorsese as a filmmaker. Um, I feel like as I've been going along with this list, I've been getting less and less eloquent in what I'm saying. Hopefully that you, the listener, have been able to derive some things from this, some things which you are, uh, you know, you've been able to say, oh yeah, I get what he's saying, or I can relate to that. Um, I apologize for this. I, I Full disclosure, this has been much harder than I anticipated it being. Uh, when Tyler asked me to do a, a podcast for, my t- for the top 10, I said, yeah, this would be great, and this would be exciting, and I started thinking about it, I started planning it. And as I've been going through, I'm like, wow, this is a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. Um, I'm glad that I'm doing it because it's, it is kind of um, reinforcing it inside me, the, you know, some of the things that I love and, and, and inspiring me to go back and rewatch some of these things and, and to, to rethink a lot of these things and to revisit a lot of these things. But it is, um, it's incredibly difficult because I'm sort of realizing now, uh, now that I'm trying to vocalize all these things to you, the level of subjectivity that it comes into play for these sort of things, just how important intangible factors are when it comes to favorites. Um, you know, certainly if I was trying to make a, a best list, I would talk a lot more about the use of the camera in Goodfellas. Um, I talk a lot more about the editing for comedic timing in Shaun of the Dead. Um, and I, I, I would talk a lot more about uh, the humor in Annie Hall, but I'm not talking about those things because those things are, are apparent to many people, especially if you're a fan of this. But favoritism is a is a is a horse of a different color. You know, sometimes it is things that can't be easily summarized or or expressed. Sometimes it's just sometimes the the things that strike you strike you because of reasons that you can't really put into words. They may be subconscious things, factors that are beyond your control, beyond your comprehension, maybe. And I'm realizing this now, and I, and I say this now instead of when I get to the end of the list, because I must say, I don't know if you are not a fan of this movie. I don't know if just listening to me talk about it is going to make you appreciate this this number one anymore. Um, if you don't like it, what I say about it will probably not make you like it. And if you do like it, what I say will probably maybe not even help you appreciate it any more than you already do. You know, favorites are favorites for a reason. I I am who I am for many reasons, and you are who you are for many reasons. Um, And so hopefully, at at the very least, by the end of this podcast, or even now, you've kind of just gotten a better picture of who I am and what things are, if not important to me, then what have shaped me. Uh, So I guess without further ado, we'll wrap it up by um, talking about my favorite film of all time and I should say in this top 10 list um, some of these titles may change some of them may move throughout the years Uh, maybe it'll get dropped off entirely maybe the order will just change but this one I am confident will never ever ever be anything other than my favorite movie of all time and nothing will ever supplant it and that is 1993's Groundhog Day directed by Harold Ramis written by Danny Rubin and Harold Ramis and this one, I hinted at this a little bit with Children of Men. This one, 
look, I, I could talk about how this is a, a, a subtly brilliant screenplay. The fact that it still goes through the standard three-act structure by repeating itself. That is, think about how, how forward progression is made through repetition. That's amazing. I could talk about how I think it is Bill Murray's best leading man performance of all time. I could think about how I appreciate the fact that it is a love story, which doesn't need the couple to end uh, or, or doesn't need the couple to get together and have sex in order to, to find a, a, a fruitful relationship. I could talk about how I think Chris Elliott is a, a great, subtle, um, secondary comedic presence. Um, and I could add something about the the allure and the charm of a small town of Punxsutawney. And I could add about how it goes through the um, the, the, the stages of grief. And I, I, I could talk and talk and talk about that. But I'm not going to. What I'm going to say is just... This and and, and I'm, I'm sorry if there was a bunch of buildup for number one and, and and it might be the one that I don't talk about the the most but Groundhog Day is my favorite because it's my favorite. Um, I mentioned with Children of Men that idea that you know I I love this movie and I was looking around and seeing that people didn't really respond the same way I did so I thought well fine this one's gonna be mine then this one this one is gonna be me the one that I carry with me the one that I take along with me. Um, and that's what Groundhog Day was. Um, I I don't remember when I first saw it. Um, I know that it played a lot on cable when I was growing up. Um, I know that I went to a screening of it when I was in college because it was this uh, it was a film series sort of about um, existence um, and eternity, and Groundhog Day was one of them. And, I, and and sort of seeing that made me remember how much I enjoyed the movie. But I can't really point to a specific moment where I thought this is this is my favorite or this is. But I, I do remember some instances in my life where we're talking about that movie with people and kind of thinking like hearing them say like, oh yeah, that's a cool one, or yeah, I, I guess I like that movie. Okay, and just kind of this constant, um, not barrage, but a constant reminder that this movie that I thought was really clever and really smart and really intelligent, and I just said the same thing three times. <laughs> um, a movie that was really intelligent and really funny and really heartwarming um, that I assumed other people would hold in the same esteem and found that they that that wasn't the case and I sort of you know kind of thought hey you know everyone's got their favorite I, I, I hear a lot of people talking about The Godfather I hear a lot of people talking about um, you know maybe Vertigo I hear, I, I hear a lot of people talking about the movies that you would expect and this says more about me than it does about other people, I suppose. Um, but I always kind of assume people who who list their favorite movie as something that you would expect, like a Godfather or like a Vertigo or like um, Shawshank Redemption or you know th those movies which are heralded as the classics, the greatest of all time. You know, the people who say that those are their favorites, I, I've always been a little bit skeptical of, and always thinking that it's like. Well, you're saying that one's your favorite because that's what people expect to hear. Or that's what people expect you to say, that that one is your favorite. When, you know, of course, it's the favorite of millions of other people. And, you know, you're not even original in thinking that thought. So maybe there was a little bit of a, <laughs> a pretentiousness to me or a presumptiveness to me. Or maybe there was a bit of wanting to rebel against what I saw as sort of a cinematic status quo that I thought... Not at the forefront of my mind, but maybe there's something inside me which is, you know what your favorite is going to be? Your favorite is going to be one that is nobody else's favorite.
And I know that that's not the case. I know that there are other people out there who, who have to have Groundhog Day as their favorite. That has to be the case. There are millions of people in this world. Oh, actually, now that I think about it, there are billions of people in this world. So there have to have been millions of people who have seen Groundhog Day, and somewhere along the line, there had to have been someone else besides me who saw this movie and thought, this is my absolute favorite. And for some reason, it, it, is, it is my favorite. It is the one that, it, you know, that, that I, when, when someone asked me, you know, or when people ask me, what is your favorite one, I can say without a shadow of a doubt, Groundhog Day is my favorite movie. I, I would not dream of trying to sell people on this idea of being in the top 10 of the best films of all time. I, I don't even know if I'd try and sell it as being in the top you know, 50 greatest films of all time. But it's one that whenever it's on TV, I'm always going to watch it. Um, I'm always going to recommend it to people. And if someone says they don't like it, I am always going to be baffled as to why they do not. But I'm not going to try and sell people on the idea of it being a great movie, although I have done it in the past. I've written more than one blog about uh, the greatness of Groundhog Day, one of which was actually read by Danny Rubin. That was one of my favorite work emails I ever got. I had printed it out and hung it on my wall for a while. There's just... It's actually kind of funny because the the the... When it comes to your favorite, I think your absolute favorite, the, the top of the heap, you know, the, the peak, there's... There's more intangible factors at play there to make something your definitive favorite than for any of these others, you know? There's just something about the life that I lived, the way that I was raised, and my, my exposure to this movie, how it changed as I changed. There, there's, there's some things that I can't quite put my finger on that have made Groundhog Day my favorite. But in a way, after sort of declaring it as my favorite, it sort of then started becoming my favorite, you know? After kind of defining it as my favorite, it, it sort of maybe opened or unleashed something inside of me where I started loving it even more after that. I, and I, I love this movie to this day. I still, I laugh at all the jokes all the time. The the, the Ned Ryerson interactions, oh my God, I, I, I don't know how many times I've seen those and I will still laugh at them and I will still quote them. And I've, I've seen Stephen Tobolowsky give talks in real life. I've been to Woodstock, Illinois, which is where they shot, you know, the, the exterior Punxsutawney uh, scenes. And I've, I've explored what I can explore about this movie because I love it so much. And I, you know, um, listen to, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a fan of podcasts, listen to uh, the, the, the Seek Out the Tobolowsky Files. Uh, it used to be done by Slash Film. Um, and there's a, an episode called The Classic. And it's about... Um, Stephen Tobolowsky getting the part of Ned Ryerson for Groundhog Day and it's a wonderful story and it's also one of the things and this is something that, that I that I can add to my appreciation I mentioned about how it's a relationship um, between <coughs> excuse me uh, between Phil and between Rita that didn't have to end with two people having sex that was almost not the case um, from what I, from what the, the podcast says is that it was, um, you know, there was kind of a debate as to should Phil and Rita sleep together. And I, I, I believe Harold Ramis actually opened it up to, to the, the cast and the crew and had people, you know, kind of give their opinion. Should, should Phil and Rita sleep together? And it actually came down to kind of a 50-50 split. And there was one crew member, I think she might have been a, a lower ranking one, maybe a production assistant or maybe something that, you know, it wasn't a producer, it wasn't a, you know, the DP. And Harold asked her, should they sleep together? And she said, no, I, I don't think that they did. And so I was like, all right, the decision was made. Phil and Rita did not sleep together. 
there's something that I that I certainly appreciate about that about a movie depicting an adult relationship in which two people don't have to necessarily have sex with each other in order to, for their relationship to become fulfilling or, or or to get to another level or to be complete. And there's also something that I love about a movie in which supernatural and or sci-fi elements sort of exist on the periphery. You know, there is something at play in which is causing Phil Connors to, to repeat Groundhog Day for thousands of years. We don't know what it is, but it's not important either. What's important is instead what he does with it while he's in there. Yeah, and I, I, I wish I could say more. I wish I could illuminate more on this point of why Groundhog Day is, in my mind, uh, my favorite film of all time. But it just sort of is, you know? Uh, when you think about a relationship, when you think about a a wife or a husband or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and, and I, I may not be the one to speak on this, but certainly there is this idea that, well, describe, describe your mate, you know? Describe your match. Describe why you love this person. And a lot of things that you list could be things that anybody could list. Oh, well, you know, she does this for me, or... You know, we went here uh, on vacation this one time, or um, I love the way that she does this thing, or, or you know that thing, and, and that's <clears throat> those are things that anyone could do to anyone else. Those are things that anyone could do to you, anyone who is besides your spouse or, or your mate. But there are things about your spouse and mate. There are things that cannot be necessarily defined. Things that could never certainly be replaced or duplicated but things that are inherent to them, not just to them, but to your experience with them, which made you realize this is the person with whom I am in love. And it's different, but there certainly are similarities when it comes to your engagement with art too. I could talk about Groundhog Day's script. I could talk about Bill Murray's performance. I could talk about the cast, I could talk about the genre elements, but at the end of the day, there were some things in life that made me the person that I am, that made me Jim Rohner. And at some point, Jim Rohner came upon Groundhog Day, and because of things that were inherent to the creation of both of them, they clicked together. <laughs> Not to say that I am in a relationship with Groundhog Day, but... I'm just saying that there are things about me and things about it that sort of always made it make sense that this is going to be my favorite movie of all time. And, you know, barring some life-changing experience, until the day I die, Groundhog Day will probably be my favorite movie of all time. And honestly, I don't know if I have much else to say about that. Um, I hope that you enjoyed uh, this podcast to, uh, to some extent. And um, hopefully, you, um, hopefully you found some type of relation and some type of maybe catharsis too. Um, don't be constrained or, uh, or don't constrain yourself by the thoughts of what, what should I like or what should be my favorites. And just think, no, no, no. What are my favorites? What are the ones that I love? What are the ones that I come back to time and time again? What are the ones that I love engaging with and love sharing? And then just run with them. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, it's easy to do. 
to do that. Um, you can email me at youdomoviesbadly at uh, gmail.com. That's my email address for my podcast, which is I Do Movies Badly, which you can certainly, um, you can find back episodes of that on Battleship Retention. Um, go to battleshipretention.com. There's a podcast drop down menu. You can find um, I Do Movies Badly there. You can find I Do Movies Badly on iTunes. Uh, you can find I Do Movies Badly on Facebook as well. Um, and Nolan Fixes Teeth is my Twitter handle. Uh, you can find me there as well. But um, I don't know really how else to. I didn't know how to eloquently introduce this episode, so I don't know how to uh, conclude this episode either. So I'll just say um, thank you for listening, everybody, and uh, yeah, hope that uh, hope that you um, hope that you embrace what makes you you, what makes your favorites your favorites, and uh, don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. All right. Thank you very much to Jim. Got a little contentious uh, and defiant there at the end, but that's okay. Um, so, okay. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed that, and uh, I hope everyone perhaps got some some good recommendations out of it, or if you've seen uh, the films before, uh, perhaps you got a, a new take on things. So, uh, so once again, thank you to Jim, and do check out his podcast, I Do Movies Badly. It is a very good show, and, uh, and I like it tremendously. So, uh, as far as contacting More Than One Lesson, you can uh, email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter, at More Lessons. Uh, as for next week, here's the deal. Next week we'll be, we'll be into October, which means we are into Halloween times. And, uh, I'm very excited about next week's episode. It has already been recorded. And, uh, one thing that I will say is that the person that, that I'm recording with, it's, it's a guest and, there are a couple of moments where we get uh, a little political. Um, he is, among other things, a, a, a political commentator. And so even though we specifically tried to avoid getting political, we do uh, a, for uh, a little bit. And and as we do, we, we do wind up uh, being a little bit, uh, I would say, dismissive of some of the people that do not agree with us uh, politically. And so if you are one of those, then uh, I do apologize. But, uh, but please listen to the episode anyway, because I think we have a really fun episode and we say some really fun things. And he's just a great guy all around. So, so tune in next week. In the meantime, once again, thank you, Jim. And thank, to, thank you to all of you for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye.